You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. We're going to read through Psalm 99 as we think on this holiness of God that we just sang about, that God is holy. Psalm 99, if you're using a black Bible from the seat, it's page 500. It'll make it easy. If you've got a red one, it's page 436. Psalm 99 says this. Think about God's holiness. It says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The King in His might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Moses and Aaron were among His priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon His name. They called to the Lord and He answered them. In the pillar of the cloud He spoke to them. They kept His testimonies and the statute that He gave them. O Lord our God, You answered them. You were forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. And let me pray as we continue. Father, we just ask again that as we have times in word and song and reading Your Word together, that Your Spirit would work amongst us, reveal to us Your Word, Your holiness and our condition and our need for You. So I'm asking, Lord, that You work by Your Spirit throughout our service. You weave in by Your power what You have for us today to hear. In Jesus' name, Amen. R.C. Sproul says this about God's holiness. He says, when the Bible calls God holy... It means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He is so far above and beyond us that He seems almost totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other, or to be different in a special way. Listen as I just briefly go through this psalm to His otherness, His holiness throughout this psalm. Verse 1 says that the Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. The Lord is a God who reigns, people tremble in His presence. The people of God in the wilderness, remember Israel in the wilderness, they experienced trembling as God visited them from Mount Sinai, a mountain uh, where God came, where there were thunderings, lightnings, thick clouds, loud trumpet blasts, a mountain wrapped in smoke. It says later on that when these people saw all of this, they were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. People tremble in the presence of God for He is holy. He is set apart from all of His creation. And verse 2 points out that this reigning one, this King, is to be exalted over all the peoples. And so in verse 3, then we see the first of Three phrases really that proclaim, holy is He. God alone is the Lord. It's like we've read about Isaiah 45. There is no other God. He is high above and He rules over all things 
in His reign. Verse 4 speaks of God's holy justice. He loves justice. He executes both justice and righteousness. In other words, God always loves to do what is right. And in fact, He always will do what is right. Because what is fair and right is founded or established by God. R.C. Sproul again says this, There is no such thing as evil justice in God. The justice of God is always and ever an expression of His holy character. He goes on to say later, God's justice is never divorced from His righteousness. He never condemns the innocent. He never clears the guilty. He never punishes with undue severity. He never fails to reward righteousness. His justice is perfect justice. So verse 5 calls the reader again to praise, to exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. Holy is He. You hearing the message throughout? Then verses 6-8, through we see God answers those. Moses, Aaron, Sam answers those that call on Him. And He is at once, verse 8, He is forgiving and merciful and yet an avenger of their wrongdoings. God in His holiness has mercy alongside justice that must punish wrongdoing. On our journey to the cross and to the resurrection of Jesus, we must first understand who God is and really stand trembling before His awesome holiness and righteousness and justice. Amen. Um, If you'd remain standing and join with me in reading Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know what what the law says. It speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You may be seated. I invite you to turn to that passage in Scripture, Romans 3, starting in verse 9. We'll just read a little bit of it that we just read. I won't read the whole thing again. Sorry, Romans 3, verse 9. Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. 
having examined the heights of God's holiness, that He is far above and beyond us. He's infinitely pure and holy. He's righteous and just. Paul now takes us to the depths of our sin, saying all are under sin. When we ask, as you saw in the video, we ask, why do people do wrong or bad things? Or why evil exists? Why are little ones bent toward disobeying? Why are bigger ones intent, it seems, on hurting others or promoting their own self? We must come back again to the Garden of Eden. What was the best of environments for two people to be obedient to God? Where Adam and Eve, you remember Adam and Eve? Where instead of delighting in their Lord, they delighted in the fruit that God had forbid from them. And at that moment, sin entered God's good creation. And that sin infected hearts, infected families, infected generations, infects all of creation since that time. J.C. Ryle says this about sin. It's a rather longer quote, but I want want you to hear this as he describes sin. Not as just some little thing. He says, Sin is a disease which pervades and runs through every part of our moral constitution and every faculty of our minds. And then he goes on to say, Even the conscience is so blinded that it cannot be depended on as a sure guide and is as likely to lead men wrong as right unless it is enlightened by the Holy Spirit. In short, and he quotes from Isaiah 1.6, From the sole of the foot even unto the head, there is no soundness. The disease may be veiled under a thin covering of courtesy and politeness and good manners and outward decorum, but it lies deep down in the Constitution. I admit fully that man has many grand and noble faculties left about him and that in arts and sciences and literature he shows immense capacity. But the fact still remains that in spiritual things he is utterly dead and has no natural knowledge or love or fear of God. His best things are so interwoven and intermingled with corruption that the contrast only brings out into sharper relief the truth and extent of that fall. Well, God has said in the chapter before this where we're at in Romans, in chapter 2, that He will render to each one according to His works. For those who are self-seeking, they do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury from this holy God. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, which according to what we just read in Romans 3 is everyone. Jonathan Edwards, preaching a sermon in the year 1741, said this of God's wrath as it relates to sinners. And I want us to hear the gist of what he's saying, that we understand this contrast of God's holiness and our sinfulness and what that deserves. Here's what he says. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. 
and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness, you know, all those things that we do. He says they would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment. And later on, he goes to say this, speaking of hell, O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. He's not mixing words, is he? Without a work of God, we all in our sin are subject to the wrath and fury of a holy and righteous God for eternity. This Easter celebration, without what we're going to talk about in a minute, is nothing and we are bound for the furnace of hell in our sin if it be not for the grace and mercy of God. And so we approach now the glory of this day. The glorious good news of God's great love for His enemies. Uh, I would invite you to stand. I'm going to read uh, Scripture from the book of Luke. Um, you can follow along as I read. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 20. And he, uh, this is Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You may be seated. Jesus. The name Jesus. After our looking at God's holiness and our sin, this is the hope that breaks through that darkness of sin the darkness of the world. John calls Him the light. The light had come. And this true light, this Jesus, was sinless. 1 Peter 2.22 says of Christ Jesus that He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. See, a new man had come. Paul says in Romans that, that through Adam came death, and in Adam all die. But Jesus came in the likeness of men 
and lived a life of righteousness and purity that we in our sin could not. I want you to turn to one verse in the book of 2 Corinthians. It's in chapter 5 and it's verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you have a black Bible, help you out. It's page 966. You can get there quicker. Or a red Bible, it's page 142 in the, in the back of the Bible, not the front part, but the back. Black Bible, 966 or 142 and a red one. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Paul is speaking here in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, this passage about being reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. And here's what he says. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Some 2,000 plus now years ago, Jesus came into Jerusalem at the beginning of the week to shouts like we talked about last week of Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. But by the end of the week, what were the shouts? They were crucify Him. And it says at that end of that week, they scourged Him They had mocked Him with a crown of thorns. They had struck His head. They had spit on Him. And they led Him to Golgotha, to Calvary, where He was crucified on a cross. This Jesus, as Paul says, who was made to be sin, who knew no sin, was cursed by God in our place. Isaiah 53 says it this way. says, Surely He has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him Him who knew no sin, He's laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The wrath and the fury, the righteous and just punishment that our sins deserved were placed upon the One who had never sinned. Ever. Jesus, the Righteous One, was the substitute in our place for the punishment we deserved. That's grace. Sinners do not deserve this kind of grace. We justly deserve punishment. No man, no woman has earned this kind of grace. Someone has said the only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin. God did not foresee somewhere down the road that we would love Him. So this was kind of a future down payment. I see they're going to love me, so I'll do this for them. No, we were captive to sin. Darkness, slaves to sin. And yet the hope is, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, back in the book of 1 Corinthians, right before this book of 2 Corinthians, it says this, Paul says this about the Gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, 
that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The wonder and the beauty, though, of Sunday, of today, is that Jesus did not stay in that grave. Jesus rose victorious over sin and death on the third day. Death would no longer have dominion. Jesus conquered sin and death. His resurrection from the dead is the proof of His rule and His reign over it. The Father's wrath was satisfied in Jesus' death and He raised Him up and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. The Lamb that was slain is worthy to forever receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Because Jesus lives, we too in Christ will live. We have a living Savior, a living Advocate before us, before the Father. A permanent priest before God who always lives to intercede for us. So that as God sees us in Christ, He sees the righteousness of Christ. Tony Reinke says this about the resurrection. He says, Easter is for stark contradictions. If Christ is still dead, death reigns and all our joys are vain. He says, so hoard every plastic Easter egg you find because whatever you find inside is all the joy you have to grab. Or as Paul says it, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But if death is dead, and if the dead are raised, if Christ is risen from the dead, brothers and sisters, let us feast and celebrate for the dawning light of our inextinguishable and inexhaustible eternal pleasures have broken into the darkness, offering us a life of joy in Christ that cannot fade or rust or be stolen away. Read along together with me Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, we're back in... Romans, and if you've got your Bibles, turn there. And Romans 3, 21 through 26, we'll just reference that a bit. We won't read it again, but where we were just reading from Romans 3, 
21 through 26. Page 941, if you're in a black Bible. 121 in the red. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Yet Jesus died for our sins and rose again. So the question is, what is our response to this gospel, to this news? Jesus stated it this way in Mark 1.15. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is the proclaiming of good news that though God is holy and though mankind is under His wrath, deserving of His wrath, there is a yet, there is a but now, as Romans 3.21 puts it, there is a but now, a righteousness of God has been revealed. And it is a righteousness that comes through faith. Paul says in verse 24, that we are justified or we are declared righteous on the account of Christ by His grace as a gift. God's work in us by His Holy Spirit is to bring to life what was dead, to free what is in slavery and bondage, to awaken what is asleep. And when God causes us to be born again, to be made alive, to be regenerated, We respond in both repentance, a turning from sin, and faith, our turning to Christ. John Murray puts it this way, the faith that is unto salvation is a penitent, it's like a repentant, penitent faith. And the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. So he goes on to say, it's impossible to disentangle faith and repentance Saving faith is permeated with repentance. And repentance is permeated with faith. Regeneration becomes vocal in our minds in the exercises of faith and repentance. Repentance is being cut to the heart. It's realizing our sin before a holy and righteous God. It's realizing that even our best deeds outside of Christ are worthless Rags, and that we in our sin, with eyes open to see God's holiness, that we speak in repentance like the prophet Isaiah, where he says, woe is me. Or in other words, I am cursed. Woe is me. For I am lost and I am a man of unclean lips. But believing repentance, while sorrowful, is turning. It's turning to believe in Jesus Christ the righteous one, the Savior, the healer for salvation. God's act of rebirth in us, it's behind our gaining eyes to our own lostness and His salvation found in Jesus Christ. We must affirm that all of this, it's a gift of God's grace. It's not works on our own that would merit or somehow earn His salvation, but there's a a resting to it. There's a God-worked Resting by faith in Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. So my question, is that where your rest is? Do you acknowledge your lostness before God? Do you long to see God and know God, and yet you know your sin is displayed before Him? 
Encouragement from the Word of God, from Jesus Himself, is repent and believe. Believe in the only name that can save. Believe in Jesus Christ and be reconciled to God. If that's you this morning, that you would do that, this, this would be a glorious Easter of coming to Christ. If that's you and you've in the past rejoice in your salvation again and rejoice even brought from death to life to spend eternity with the Lord by looking on Him for salvation. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. But proclaim His glory to the nations this week. Amen.